As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Nationwide podcast. This is the Athletics dedicated Columbus Blue Jackets uh, podcast. Aaron Portsign here with Allison Lucan. Say hello, Allison. Hello. And Tom is out there somewhere. Tom, you there? Yes, I am. Oh man, this is working. This might be two weeks in a row. Um, so the Blue Jackets, two games into the season, we're going to get into uh, some news from this week. Later in this program, we're going to speak with Arthur Staple, who covers the New York Islanders for the. Athletic, and of course, covered them last season during the the uh, final season of John Tavares's time uh, with the Islanders. So we'll we'll speak with him uh, later. There's not a direct correlation with with what's happening with the Blue Jackets right now and Tavares, but it's really really similar, and it probably deserves a closer look. So that'll be that'll be good to get uh, news of the week for the Blue Jackets uh, so far, and not good news. We learned yesterday that Brandon Dubinsky is out now for four to six weeks after suffering an oblique strain. Looked to be on his right side as he came off the ice, clutching himself Sunday at the end of practice. That is a big blow. And it's a it, it let's just deal specifically with Dubinsky here if we can. I mean he Dubinsky I think has surpassed it's only two games, yes, but has surpassed pretty much everybody's expectations to how far he could come in a summer and how well he could play. And given the Blue Jackets' overall sort of struggles, sort of disjointed play the first couple of games, he's been their best forward. And I think that this injury hits them even harder than anybody could imagine it would at this time. Allison, your thoughts on this? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it again, it's only two games um, in terms of the actual play that matters on the season. But and it's also, you know, Dubinsky's coming off a pretty rough performance last year. But this is a guy who, if you look at not just the, the scoring numbers, but even the underlying numbers, he was he is leaps and bounds right now ahead of where he was on the season as a total last year. And actually with fewer offensive zone starts and a little bit lower uh, save percentage playing behind him in net. So he really was rebounding nicely. Um, I think it's a, it's a shame for the player and for the team. We also talked to Torts a little bit yesterday about how it's, it's the emotional side he brings too. I think Torts's quote is always Dubinsky drags guys into it. Right. So yeah, right. that, el- that element is missing. And uh, you, j- you just want to see him hopefully return to play and not have to lose too much um, Dubinsky's gone through, um, we couldn't remember which side, but did go through some repairs to, to his, his abdominal region a few years ago. Um, so we hope this is just a strain and can heal quickly and that the player can return to what seemed to be a nice little comeback season for himself. Yeah. And, and he has been probably their best forward. I think he's got the same number of points as Panarin and Panarin does things that Brandon Dubinsky can't do. Even Dubinsky would admit that. But I think within each player's game, I think Dubinsky has been the best forward for the Blue Jackets in the early going. Now is when you really appreciate, if you're the Blue Jackets, having signed Riley Nash over the summer because now Nash moves up in the lineup. He can patch that that spot. Uh, The Blue Jackets, just to go through it, moved Wenberg up between Felino and Duclair. And now they've got Riley Nash just where Dubinsky was between Jenner and Anderson, leaving the number one line together. So the other lineup change that comes in is Sedlak will now skate tonight between uh, Sonny Milano and Oliver Bjorkstrand in a sort of fourth line. That was a really good line in Cleveland a few years ago. We'll see how it works in the NHL. Uh, Tom, uh, your thoughts, Dubinsky out, Nash in. It's hard not to think back to last year where when this sort of thing happened, Nick Foligno had to go to the middle or Boone Jenner had to go to the middle. Um, It helps to have Riley Nash, but they need more now from other people in the middle. Do they not? Yeah, they certainly do. And it it always seems in this uh, in this podcast and you don't want to say we're picking on him, but, you know, this is where you need Alexander Winberg to really kind of step up and, 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 and start playing like the Alexander Weinberg of two seasons ago. Right. Uh, it, it also creates, it does create an opportunity for a, 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 a player like Lucas Sedlak, who almost seems like a forgotten man. Uh, it's, it's, you know, we, we forget that Lucas Sedlak a couple years ago was their fourth line center and a very effective fourth line center for a long stretch of the season. I think he might've played with Scott Hartnell and, I don't know if it was Anderson, but they anchored a pretty good fourth line during their uh, historic uh, uh, win streak. So this gives kind of Lucas Sedlock a chance to bounce back. But sure, the overlying thing here is the addition of Riley Nash. And, you know, we know that and not this, this isn't quite apples to apples of the comparison. But, of course, we, we've seen him move up in the lineup before in Boston and uh, <clears throat> play extremely well. Yeah. Uh, for stretches. So I'm sure the Blue Jackets are going to hope that he can do the same 
at a time where they kind of had a kind of get away to the season. And, on a, you know, on a personal note with Dubinsky, you know, he put so much work into the off season. I mean, I, you know, went over, did a story on him working out at the barn with uh, Brady Power. Yeah. He'd also worked with uh, Kim Atkinson and he had just gotten his, Basically, his 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 body and conditioning just exactly probably how it needed to be. With this oblique strain, you wonder how much he's going to be able to really mm-hmm. kind of work in the off season. Obviously, the lower body, I mean, you would think he would stuff, but you know we'll see how he returns once he does get back in the lineup. Yeah, I think it was uh, Gagne maybe on the right side of Sedlak with with Hartnell. There you, there you go. Yeah. Such a good fourth line. Uh, one other lineup change for the Blue Jackets tonight. Scott Harrington will be in the lineup against Colorado. Uh, he's been out for uh, a couple of weeks, week and a half with a concussion. Uh, not sure who he goes in for. Looks like Clendenning, maybe. So a Kuki and Harrington pair on the third pair. The Blue Jackets, of course, without Seth Jones. Uh, he's out probably another two to four weeks, I would think, at this point with a sprained knee. So. Uh, the big deal tonight when Colorado comes to Nationwide Arena, of course, will be the return of two uh, former Blue Jackets. It seems like the Avs always have a significant number of former Blue Jackets. Uh, in this case, it's it's uh, Matt Calvert, who spent eight years in Columbus. Uh, and really, for I think, when the Blue Jackets around 12, 13, 13, 14, in that span, he really was almost the embodiment of the franchise, this undersized, scrappy, relentless player. Uh, I think people in Nation in Nationwide Arena uh, will give him a warm welcome tonight. He's the kind of guy that fans love, and rightly so. Undersized, um, always willing to scrap. I mean, who can forget the double overtime uh, goal against Pittsburgh, the first playoff win in Blue Jackets franchise history? And yet, I almost think the one goal that really speaks uh, to Matt Calver was that was the shorthanded goal he scored after having his forehead split open like firewood. Uh, 36 stitches or something stupid that night, uh, and then coming back with a bloody forehead and scoring a shorthanded goal. Uh, Ian Cole comes back in as well. These are two guys that the Blue Jackets, uh, facing tough decisions, let go over the summer, lost them both to the Avs via free agency. What are you what are you two expecting uh, from those guys tonight in, in Nationwide Arena? What sort of response do you think they're going to get? I mean, I think you can't deny that Matt Calvert is just going to get a rousing round of applause and cheers. This is also the player, I think, a memory that stands out for a lot of fans is when uh, Rick Nash returned to Nationwide Arena and had a little bit of a run-in with Sergei Bobrovsky. And who jumps to... Bob's defense on the next face-off, it's Matt Calvert, who goes in against Rick Nash, right? It was kind of surreal, that experience. Hey, um, so I think that this is a guy, I think you you nailed it, this is a guy who has embodied what this fan base has wanted this team to be, what this team has been for so long, uh, did not leave on, on bad terms, and will continue to probably be beloved even after he retires. I mean, this is a guy Columbus loves. Yeah. Tom, he- Calvert is, is, I think it will be easier for people to understand. Yeah, this is a guy that had played way beyond a fourth line role, and that's sort of all he could get here in Columbus. And yet he was being paid easily third line 
money. He's making that with the Avs now too. He needed a bigger role somewhere to spread his wings. I think I think most people say, yeah, that makes sense. I think the Ian Cole thing, that's the one when he comes back tonight, it's not going to have the same emotional attachment as Calvert did. But you can't help but look at this Blue Jackets team. And, and I just said they have a Dean Kukie and Scott Harrington third pair. And not with Seth Jones out, with, with, with other stuff they've gone on with their blue line, and not think, man, Ian Cole would have been nice to, nice to keep here in, in Columbus. A tough decision for them. I think the Blue Jackets set a number. This is, this is where we'll go with Ian Cole and, and no higher. But Ian Cole left here and seems, by all accounts, to be happy in Colorado. But that that just feels like a move that's going to be continually um, resurfacing as the season goes along. No, without question, he played so well here. Um, you know, it just he stepped in. He was part of that group that kind of stepped in at the trade deadline. You'll remember, and they just absolutely mauled the Washington Capitals uh, on the first day after the trade deadline. I think it was the trade deadline day. And it kind of went from there, and they kind of picked up their game, got into the playoffs, got off to the 2-0 lead, and we all know what happened after that. But Cole came in, played so well with David Savard, and he was well-liked in the locker room. I think guys kind of uh, – you know, there's times where guys – and you both have seen this uh, when the Blue Jackets weren't going well, where you, where you'd bring guys in that – uh, to quote, uh, John Tortorella had a pocket full of rings and that didn't, that didn't work for whatever reason, their presence and their ability to be a, uh, you know, having a Stanley cup champion in a locker room didn't seem to really have an impact. Maybe it was cause the team was so bad in the years past, but I thought this was a case where you brought a guy in who had won cups that really did, really did impact the team. Didn't wear you don't and he's proof you don't have to wear a letter uh, to have an impact as right. far as leadership and I and I really thought he did uh, you know I certainly he, I still think he will be more thought of tonight than another former uh, Blue Jacket defenseman who went to Colorado Adam Foot <laughs> oh jeez oh, yeah. <laughs> right it's amazing the uh, former Blue Jackets defensemen that have made their way to Colorado, Jan Hada, um, Nick Holden, Nate Tootin. Gennon, yep. Fedor Tutin. I mean, it's crazy. It's like the uh, all roads. They just hop on 70 and drive west, I suppose. That's what happens. Um, so it, Blue Jackets tonight against the Avs. They leave Wednesday for a trip to Florida. Already that trip to Florida has had some, uh, some travel uh, curiosities. They've delayed their flight from Miami. Uh, to Tampa Bay because of the hurricane uh, that is hitting the Gulf side of Florida. So keep your your alerts up for that. That could be an interesting road trip here. Um, want to turn now to Arthur Staple, who covers the New York Islanders and has for a number of years does a really really good job and dealt last year extensively uh, covering the situation between the Islanders and Jonathan Tavares. Arthur. I'm, I'm fascinated by this. I, I think uh, people who, who follow hockey are always interested in, in sort of the, the um, gritty inside stuff. What was that? What was last season like with the Tavares stuff? Now, it is, it is different. I don't think there's by any means a direct comparison here in Columbus where you've got Artemi Panarin who has not 
dissed Columbus, but has said he doesn't want to talk with them. And it sure looks like he's going to sign elsewhere. Bob Rofsky's even a little different from that, where he is a UFA. And I think Columbus and he are in an active sort of tete-a-tete, if you will, um, trying to grab leverage in this. They're different, but they're not entirely different, where you've got a franchise player who may not be back next year. And I just, I'd love to hear from you what that season was like uh, with Tavares, the uneasiness around it, the uncertainty around it, how it affected the players, how often did he talk about it, and how difficult was it to keep that story and, and that sort of uncertain future from just seeping into literally everything about the team? Um, well, you know, when he, when he first made his decision uh, known uh, after the 16-17 season where, um, you know, he's obviously eligible to sign an extension that July 1st right. and uh, let everyone know that he wasn't interested in doing that right then. He wanted to take some time to kind of assess where the franchise was going, uh, almost literally, because he certainly didn't want them to play in Brooklyn for very much longer beyond uh, any time that they needed to. And that was, you know, that was not something that he spoke openly about, but it was pretty well known from other guys on the team and even from the front office that the Brooklyn situation was not a good one for the players and certainly not a good one for him. Uh, he's a guy who's very much a creature of habit and, and the, the routine had been a little disrupted, even though they'd had some success in Brooklyn, that was where they won their first playoff series in 23 years. So, um, it was just an interesting dynamic. And really when, when I heard, uh, in the summer of 17 that he was going to wait and see, uh, you know, that's a pretty big red flag right away. Obviously, you know, they're coming off a season where they missed the playoffs uh, even though they Doug Waite came in and, and kind of almost saved the season when he took over for Jack Capuano. Um, so I think there were there was kind of a crossroads there early in that offseason where Scott Malkin, the principal owner, and John Ledecky, his co-owner, had a chance to, to change the direction of the franchise once they heard that John Tavares wanted to see where they were going to take it. And I think in waiting to hear that, um, you know, Dean Lombardi was available as a potential GM. There were a lot of coaching candidates out there. And then uh, I think in the in the hopes of appeasing John Tavares, they stuck with Garth Snow, who's a good friend of Tavares's. They made Doug Waite the head coach, who's also a close friend of Tavares. And I think that was the first indication that if this next season didn't go well, things were going to go off the rails pretty quickly. And he was not going to be terribly interested in staying because they were doing things in the hopes of keeping him without getting any sort of express uh, confirmation right. from, from Tavares that this was what he wanted. So that was an interesting dynamic right from the start. And John was pretty good about answering questions about it. Uh, you know, he's, he's always been a guy who's willing to talk about whatever he feels is on his mind. He's, he's not uh, the most expansive guy or tells you, reveals a lot about his personal feelings, but he answers the questions and he was willing to answer them. You know, it's, we don't have a big, media contingent. And, and before, uh, before the athletic came along, when I was working for Newsday, it was really mostly just me in the locker room a lot of the time. So, um, you know, it, it was, a it felt weird to keep asking him the same questions after every couple of weeks. So, right. um, but he was, he was good about it. And he was, you know, the way they started off last season with Matthew Barzal kind of creating a, a big stir, uh, right from the start. And, them with their high-powered offense it seemed like it was a fun time and all the questions receded to the background but when uh 
when they started to go south uh, in December, kind of right around the time they announced uh, the plan for the new arena at Belmont Park Racetrack, which you would think would also be kind of a uh, an important step for him. Uh, when the team started to go south and there was rumblings that, you know, Garth Snow might be in trouble, um, there's definitely some, some tension. You know, the, the guys could kind of play it off a little bit. And certainly as we got around the trade deadline, uh, it's not that, not that John uh, got sour or, or shirked his responsibilities in any way, but I think you could see it wearing on him on the ice and off the ice. And, and by the time we got to the off season uh, with, with a very contentious press conference uh, with, with John Ledecky and, and Garth Snow and Doug Wade at the end of the season, it really felt like this was going to be a remote chance of him staying, even though he'd said all along, that's where he wanted to be. So, um, and then we got into the, you know, Lou Lamarillo comes in, Garth Snow goes out, Doug Wade goes out, Barry Trotz comes in and all that happens a couple of weeks before he's got to make his decision. So it was, uh, it was a crazy year. Um, it didn't feel quite as crazy at the time, but I think, you know, internally for Tavares, it was a lot of turmoil and uh, he had a good season production wise. But I think his role as the captain of the team and the leader of the franchise, he was uh, he wasn't terribly comfortable. And it was a lot of it was a lot of a lot of blame to go around, I think, to how, to, how they got to that point. Yeah. When, when you because you, you started to hear this last year from from people who are always quick and bold with opinions that may or may not be informed. There's no way he's staying there. You know, you hear that with Panarin now, and I, I, I do think that that's certainly what it looks like. Did you do you ever did you ever really? Uh, let me put it this way: Did you think Tavares legitimately would have could have stayed there, or the way that he handled it was it his way to sort of appease people until such time that he could leave? No, I think he was going to stay. I think even after all that, um, you know, when he met with Lamarillo before Lamarillo was even announced as taking over as president, um, you know, I think he he liked Lou's plan. And uh, and I think even if if Garth had stayed with a, maybe a different mandate and possibly a, a chance to get a different coach and, and beef up uh, a front office that had always been a very bare bones operation, um, I think he was looking for reasons to stay. And, um, you know, even in his own in his own words in the Players' Tribune and some of the things he said after he after he made his decision, it, it really did go down to the wire. And that's the part where um, plenty of Islander fans feel jilted by him that that he couldn't have made his decision earlier. And really, you know, it, it starts with with the with ownership kind of giving him as much latitude as he needed instead of putting a, a time frame on a on a decision, whether it was the previous summer or before training camp last year or in by Christmas or by the trade deadline that really didn't set any parameters. And I think that let this thing go on quite literally to the last possible moment. And he was still considering the Islanders to the last possible moment. I think, like I said, he's a creature of habit. I think he was happy. Uh, he would have been happy to sign for eight years and stay here, but he, there were things that were pulling him away. Um, and things that were pushing him away as well. You know, Lou, Lou had, had a, had a good vision laid out, but, uh, but once we got through the draft and he didn't get a goalie, um, I think that was maybe a little bit of a wake up call to Tavares that maybe this, you know, the plan sounds great, but am I going to go through another eight years of having some talent, but not having enough to, to win consistently here. And I think he saw what Toronto was building. And, um, so, you know, I, I, 
yeah, I, I think everybody can look back now, uh, the armchair quarterback, and say, well, when he said he wasn't going to sign, obviously he was out the door. And I don't necessarily think that's true. And maybe it's not true for Panarin, but it's certainly a big enough red flag where you say, if you're ownership or you're the general manager, you have to say now, especially in light of Tavares, we got to do something about this because we can't just wait and, and hope we'll improve. Right. Tom? Uh, obviously, it's, it sounds, Arthur, that all along that they were – uh, we're in, in dead set on trying to keep him and trying to make it work uh, in Brooklyn. But did you ever get a sense of of what his market was at the time? Because I think one of the the interesting things here with Panarin is they don't. I don't think that they see, feel like they're you know the, the Blue Jackets are in a, in a window right now where they feel like they're contending and they may not be able to get anything more than prospects and futures and draft picks. Uh, what was the market out there for John Tavares if they would have moved him early in the year or then close to the deadline? Or did it just never seem to come to that because the Islanders were so dead set in, in holding on to him? I mean, <clears throat> once we got closer to the trade deadline, Garth Snow was explicitly told by Scott Malkin, the owner, you're not trading him. And uh, so I don't think garth even explored the possibility just to sort of come back to ownership and say this is what we could get and that's at the trade deadline that's just for two months of of him um in another uniform and and possibly whatever playoffs you could get so yeah i think if you look all the way back rewind it back to last the previous summer if you're if you're approaching training camp and you say you know uh, kind of like a canadian's max patch situation um that you know it's not even like that i think because the situation with the Islanders, if John Tavares says, I'm not going to sign, and Garth Snow throws open the, the the bidding to the entire league, you're, you know, especially on the contract that John Tavares was on, you get one year of John Tavares at six and a half million. Uh, there's a lot of teams that can bid on that. So I would imagine you were looking at a couple of first round picks and a couple of A-level prospects and maybe even a roster player. It, it's uh it's hard to really gauge now because it's such a hypothetical and it really never got to that stage. And, uh, but you know, Panarin is, uh, is probably about as close as you can get to that. The problem I would imagine in Columbus, like you pointed out, Tom, is that they're a much better team than the Islanders were last year, uh, going into the season and, and they need Artemi Panarin to succeed. The Islanders obviously didn't succeed with John Tavera. So, so you can look back and say, obviously, you know, clearly the right move was to at least shop him around and see what you could get, but it never really got to that point. So it's hard to really say. Allison. Yeah. <clears throat> Building on that last point, Arthur, it's, I mean, and you mentioned kind of the fan reaction to that player's tribune piece as well. You know, I, I think that's some of the dialogue going on here is, Oh, just push, make the run, right. Go all in. And, and just what can you share with us about kind of the state of things now when you when you don't get any kind of return and, and how that kind of impacts the psyche of the fan base, if you will? Well, the Islanders uh, fan base psyche has been impacted a lot over the last quarter century. <laughs> so um, a lot of them certainly and now it's justified feel like what, what else can happen to, to me as a fan of this team? Um, but yeah, it was. It's a big. It's a big failure, and I think. Uh, I think the guys that are that were still here, um, you know, ones that were friends with John and ones that maybe weren't as close with him, really felt like, you know, what what's what are we doing here? And it was a bit of mixed emotions, I think, because yeah, the decision came so close on the heels of hiring Barry Trotz, and I think even 
just three games into the season, you can see with a roster that's that's not terribly talented, uh, they're still they've won a couple games and gotten some good goaltending and and produced much better uh, overall play, even with with a, with a limited the limited talent they have, probably because of Barry Trotz and because of Mitch Korn. Um, so uh, it's it's a strange time to be an Islander fan. There's definitely some hope for the future because Barry Trotz is here and because Lou has such a track record, but also you know, the, the difficulty of dealing with Tavares leaving and the, the slap in the face that was, you know, the 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 bed sheets, uh, bed sheet, Leafs bed sheet photo that he posted almost <laughs> immediately after signing um, is a lot of hurt feelings. And I think, you know, if they had traded him uh, when he said he wasn't interested in signing, it, it would have stung for sure. And last season might have been a little bit more disappointing. But I, I imagine the the fans would have uh, you know, as as modern fans feel now, a lot of them they they look at they you know they're they're a smart group. Uh, they understand what prospects mean. They understand what draft picks mean. They understand how how the league is getting younger and faster. And uh, I think they would have accepted it after after a little bit. And um, Columbus may be in a different situation because, like you said, they're they're looking at a team that that wants that can, has success at hand and and needs it. You know, they're they're Blue Jackets fan. Fan base psyche isn't uh, probably isn't in a, a very good position either over the last uh, couple of decades. So um, it, it's a hard line to walk, I think, for ownership and management because you know all you have to do is look at <clears throat> the Islanders' crazy arena situation this year, splitting their time between Brooklyn and Nassau Coliseum, and the promise still of Belmont Park being built, but they got less than nine thousand yesterday afternoon for a uh, a game on a, on a school holiday that usually draws at least 12 or 13. And uh, that's what it's going to be like for the next couple months. Cause I think there's a lot of fans who just feel like, why am I spending money on a team that couldn't retain its star and, and doesn't really have a lot to, to bring me out. That's a, the uh, perfect sort of bridge to my uh, last question for Arthur. Uh, you hear uh, Panarin specifically that he wants to go to a big market team. And I've, I've heard, that there's an immense amount of respect from him and the people around him for Lou Lamorello. Um, the Islanders also need a, I think, I think you would agree with this, a long-term uh, goaltending solution. What If you can look at, at both at Panarin and, and Lamorello and his desire to add to this team quickly and, and severely upgrade the talent level up front, and also the possibility of them going after a top goaltender can you just look at Panarin and Bobrovsky uh through the outlook of possibly maybe their potential of being Islanders next year because I have heard that team mentioned as a destination uh potentially for both I mean <clears throat> I would imagine that uh, uh they'd, be, they'd be very invested in trying to get both those guys I can't I can't really see a, a trade this year just because the Islanders expectations are relatively low and I don't think they're willing to give up the ass the few assets that they have and really the main ones that they got were courtesy of the Garth Snow trade of Travis Hamanick at the draft the previous year for uh an extra first that was ended up being a lottery pick from Calgary and an extra second so with those those four picks in the first 43 at the draft this past year they've they've really restocked their their prospect pool so I don't think they're willing to give those guys up but but yeah, if we're talking free agency, they they're sitting on a ton of cap space. I would imagine if the season goes the way a lot of people expect the Islander season to go, um, they'll be in a situation to to offload some other players for for futures and uh, or maybe take back a bad contract to in, even increase their cap space going into the off season. So um, 
you know, I think they're positioned to to make a run at, at both guys. There's obviously a big need on the right side uh, of their top line. Uh, they've got Matthew Barzell as their number one center, and and uh, they've got some other decent pieces like Anders Lee and, and Ryan Pollock on the back end. But a dynamic winger would certainly help things, especially on the right side where they're pretty thin in the organization. Uh, and like you said, goaltending has bedeviled them since uh, Billy Smith hung him up in uh, in the late 80s. So, um, you know, Robin Leonard had a nice start, and and uh, whether that can be sustained is would will be interesting to see. But but certainly, um, they're both guys that uh, that would be on their radar, and and uh, I am I am curious to see how Lamarillo fares. You know, the Islanders have never been a big destination. Um, we've always heard it's whether it's the building when, it, when they played in the, the old decrepit Coliseum, or it was the lack of winning or the lack of real uh, structure inside the organization when Charles Wong owned the team and kind of was more of a penny pinching type. Um, now with Scott Malkin, he's willing to spend, and Lou Lamarillo has beefed up the scouting staff and the front office, uh, and obviously they're spending big on Barry Trotz, so maybe that has more of an impact with free agents than uh, than the, the team not necessarily being in a, in a great position right now to, to have future success. But uh, but I am curious to see at 76 whether Lou Lamarillo can, uh, can, can charm uh, the modern star player to come play here for seven years. It's uh, it's going to be interesting. He didn't have a ton of time to do it this past offseason, and their efforts were focused on Tavares, obviously in vain, and the, and the guys that he did end up signing were really more, more complimentary players. So uh, we'll see uh, we'll see if he can make a big pitch when we get to next summer, uh, whether those guys are even available next summer. It doesn't always seem to happen, but, uh, but I, am, I am intrigued when he's going to be battling with the likes of the Rangers or the Kings maybe, teams in, in, uh, in big markets that you associate with, uh, with big stars, whether he can compete with them at the Islanders. Arthur, how's your Russian? <laughs> Not great. Not great. No. I should I should have learned when uh, when Nikolai Kulam and Mikhail Grabowski got here, but uh, right. they only they only taught me a few words that I'm not allowed to say on the podcast. Uh, did you? You can say it's the athletic. You can say <laughs> what you want. Uh, did you have Yashin? Uh, no, that was before my time. Yeah, you're a young chap. Yeah. Oh, great. Hey, listen, thanks so much for for joining us and and uh, bringing the perspective here. I really appreciate it. Um, we're um, I think the, what Allison is this episode twelve. This is episode twelve. Holy smokes! Uh, front and nationwide. If you if you if you're listening to this and thinking, boy, these people would be really interested, really interesting to read. Uh, here's a, a great offer for you: theathletic.com/front and nationwide. Uh, and thanks to David Cook for our intro music and outro music at David Cook Music. Arthur, thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, and uh, Allison, Tom, thanks for being here. We'll uh, convene on Friday, and I'll see you all out at the rink. Thanks.